Well, good morning. My name is Dusty Davis, and I am the campus pastor uh, here at our Creekside campus. So it's a fun perspective to be up here opening the word with you guys this morning, and I'm excited about that. We will be continuing in our Kingdom of Priests series, and we'll be in Exodus 15. So if you have your Bible, you can open there, and we'll look at some passages there. If I'm honest, as I read this passage of Scripture this week, I, I don't know. I've, I felt like it was a little bit um, of an insignificant section of Scripture. You know, it's, it's bookended by the Red Sea. Right, The plagues in Egypt, the amazing, miraculous exit. And then on the other end of it is this approach to Mount Sinai where God comes down in his power and his glory and he presents the Ten Commandments. And then in the middle of that, there's this little time of wandering through the desert. But as I spent time reading it and I spent time looking at how God interacted with Israel and, and the things that Israel had to walk through, I came to the realization that more of my life is lived in the wandering wilderness than on the amazing, miraculous mountaintops. And as I thought through my life, one time period in particular is my sophomore year in college. Uh, To be honest, I thought college would just kind of be a a quick pass-through. Coming out of high school and then on the other end of college, I thought I'd go play professional baseball. But the twists and turns of life didn't let it go that way. And so my sophomore year, I got hurt. I had to quit playing baseball. Uh, I also had a girlfriend of a little over a year that I thought we were probably headed toward marriage. And she took an internship and flew to London and sent me an email when she got there and said, I just really don't think we should ever talk again. Okay, great. (laughs) I got this thing figured out. Um, But in one of the toughest periods of my life, God was there. God was faithful. Uh, My detour away from baseball actually took me into a passion, a pursuit, a love for full-time ministry. Hence, I've landed here today. And then not a month after I got the dreaded email from London... I met a young lady named Amanda Carmen, who now today is Amanda Davis. So yeah, super thankful for that one as well. Um, But I I just want to say as we dig into this, as we look at this period of wandering, uh, life has its ups and downs. And a lot of life is, feels like trudging, like maybe insignificance. But I want us to see today that God is faithful and God is good and God provides and God is alongside us every step of the way. So as we walk through this wilderness journey, it is a roller coaster. And so that will be how we track along with them. It begun at the top there, leaving Egypt, got the Exodus, the Red Sea, all of that. And we see Israel's response coming out of that is a, a song of triumph. They, they are excited, they grab some drums, they go out and dance before the Lord, and they sing what is the first recorded song of worship. And they are just pouring out with their eyes on their God. And if you look at the content of that dance, the, fir- the song, the first half of it is what he has done. So if you're in Exodus 15, the first section uh, are verses 2 through 12. And it says, 
The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They say he has over he has thrown them into the sea. He has overthrown those who have risen up against him. You blew with your breath and the sea closed on them. And then you stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them up. And so as Israel as Israel's looking back on the events that have just happened, it's not the events themselves that they're celebrating. They didn't say, we saw the plagues, we were saved by the Lamb's blood, we passed out of Egypt, we are now redeemed. Their entire focus is on God and what he has done. And then in verse 13, they shift and they look at what he will do. And they say in verse 13, by your loyal love, you will lead the people whom you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength. To your holy dwelling place. In regard to the enemies ahead, in verse 16, they say, Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as steel as stone until your people pass by, O Lord. Until you, the people whom you have bought pass by. And then loud, lastly, they sing about the confidence in their destination. They know where they will end up. Because of the God that is leading them. And they say, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place you made for your residence, O Lord. The sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. And so coming out of Israel, coming through the Red Sea, their eyes are on God. And they say, we know we have enemies coming. We know we have a journey before us. But we know where we will end up because our God is bigger Look what he's done. Look what he will do. And yet, as so quickly happens on a roller coaster, you're up at the top of that hill, you're ready to go, and woo! You plunge right down into that first deep valley, and they do that after only three days. So there's this rejoicing, there's this singing, there's this declaring of our God, and then three days later, they've been wandering, looking for some water, they, came, they come upon a place called Mara that has water, but they find that the water is bitter, and they complain in disappointment. And I can relate. I mean, there's been times in my life where I'm focused on something, I'm heading towards something, I'm, I'm working towards something, and I get there just to find out that it's not going to work, or that there's more that needs to be done. And so as they get to this place and they think they've arrived at water, they're disappointed because it's not drinkable. And so let's look here at verse 24. So chapter 15, verse 24. So the people murmured against Moses, saying, what can we drink? And the, the verb there, murmured, it's almost like it means to be stubborn. It means to be stuck. And so as they see that they're disappointed as they see that the water's not good for drinking. They just fixate on that detail and they grumble and complain and murmur. And yet God shows up and he transforms their circumstances. He knows their need. They're there. It's bitter. He could have just changed it. But he intentionally draws their attention to the fact that no matter their circumstances, he can change what's going on for their good. 
So let's read verse 25 and 26. Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when Moses threw it into the water, the water became safe to drink. So we see God shows up. He says, Moses, let's be delivered about that. You take this thing, you throw it in the water, and I'm going to make the water sweet and safe to drink. But knowing that the greatest need for the Israels isn't their external need merely of water, but their greatest need is to keep their eyes fixed on him. He goes a step further, and he lays this ordinance before them, and he says, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God... And do what is right in his sight. And pay attention to his commands. And keep all of his statutes. Then all the disease that I brought on the Egyptians, I will not bring on you. For I, the Lord, am your healer. And so quickly, three days later, down in the valley, we need some water. We found some water. We can't drink the water. God says, don't get stuck on the details. Remember that I, and I'll give you some water to drink. But don't forget about me. And so quickly, they climb that next hill. This is the strangest verse to me of the whole passage. It's one verse, and it talks about this paradise of Elam. It's in verse 27. And it just describes, they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. And they camped there by the water. As I thought about it, one thing that did stick out to me is, in the moment of plenty, in the moment of Water and date palms and camping and resting. It's not the place that he laid out the ordinance. But that was back in the complaint and in the disappointment. And I know often in my life when things are going good, when things are rolling along, I often think, man, I must be doing a great job. Or hey, by dumb luck, things are going well. And so I don't know if in the moment of disappointment, God took that moment to say, hey, don't forget about me. And then I also think God knows what we can handle. God knows what we need. And so knowing that they've got a difficult journey through the desert just ahead of them, maybe he's providing them a time of respite and refreshment to get ready to go forward with what's ahead of them. Either way, one verse right there about this paradise of Elam uh, that seems like a pretty cool place to camp. So from there... Uh, we head back down the hill into another valley. And things get amped up a little bit. Here we see Israel. Uh, they're in want. They're, they're going around. They're running out of food. And they're saying, man, we need something to eat. And in their want, instead of turning to the Lord, they go to uh, complaining and to ridiculous exaggerating. Okay? We see them. Let's read it. Verses 2 and 3. Chapter 16, 2 and 3. Let, Here's what they say. The entire company of Israelites murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I just think, like, are you... Are you ridiculous? Like, this kind of reminds me of my kids when they come home from school. And they're like, hey, Dad, can I have a snack? And I'm like, well, it's like an hour till dinner. Let's just wait. Right? And then it's like, oh, but Dad, only a snack. I have not eaten in hours. And a simple granola bar would complete my life. I mean, are you, are you serious? 
Egypt, oh, forget the slavery. Forget the evil Pharaoh who killed your sons. No, our man, pots of meat and bread to the full. Give me a break. Right? So for me with my kids, I just tend to like want to laugh and go, you're absolutely ridiculous right now. Fortunately, God responds a little bit better than I do. And so God comes in and he provides. He hears their want. He hears their grumbling and complaining. And though their eyes are on the circumstances and not on him, he steps in and provides out of nowhere. Let's look at verse four together. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people will go out and gather the amount for each day so that I may test them. Will they walk in my law or not? And so God steps in and he says, no problem. I'll just rain down bread from heaven. We got this. But I'm gonna do it day by day. So that, you know, he could have like had a a random wild herd of sheep run in front of them and they capture them and now they've got food. But no, day by day, he provides according to that day. And he says, tell them, only gather what they need. Don't take extra because I'm gonna show back up. And yet, we see that Israel is not so trusting. In verse 20, it says, But they did not listen to Moses, and some kept part of the manna until morning. And it was full of worms, and it began to stink. And Moses was angry with them. What a faithful God. Right? Like, there's this manna, and we get to eat it, but... What if, what if there's not some tomorrow? And what, what if we just gather a little bit more right now and to save them from that self-dependence? God says, no, it won't even last. You need to look to me each day. Oh, except for the day that I've built in for you to rest and for you to look to me. And on that day, actually, yeah, grab two days worth and it won't go rancid. That day I'll make it. I'll make it last. So he steps in, he provides, but he does it in a way that says, don't get stuck on your circumstances. Remember that it's me who provides. And then he goes even beyond that. Uh, He shows their glory. He shows his glory to them. So he lays out to Moses what's gonna happen. And then right before he starts providing, uh, he shows himself. So starting in verse nine, Then Moses said to Aaron, tell the whole community of the Israelites to come before the Lord, because he has heard your murmurings. As Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israelites, and they looked toward the wilderness, there the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the murmurings of the Israelites. Tell them, during the evening you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be satisfied with bread. Right? He directly addresses their ridiculous exaggerations. Pots full of meat, bread to the fullest. He says, bread and meat, or meat and bread, I got you. This evening, says, so that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. I'll provide, I'll show up, I'll give you what you're daydreaming and thinking is gonna complete your life. But I want you to remember that that's really only found in me. And then he goes a step further because he wants all generations to know. And so he tells them, he says, take some of the manna and put it in a jar 
And I will preserve that so that all of the generations, the generations to come will know that I am the one who fed you. And this is what you ate in the wilderness. So Israel's chugging along. God's coming in. He's meeting their needs. He's hearing their complaints. And he's trying to shift their focus back to him and not merely um, on the needs at hand. So next, we start climbing back up. We're starting moving a little closer to getting out of the desert, to getting over to Mount Sinai. And we have a stop here at this place called Rephidim. And at Rephidim, it's no longer just a want of the meat and the bread. And it's no longer just a disappointment of we thought we had something and it's taken away. But here we begin to see a real need, a deep need. Uh, In verse 3, it says the people were very thirsty for water. This is now in chapter 17. And so there's a, 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 you have now probably around two and a half million Israelites and their cattle. And they are very thirsty. And so a lot of times when a, a very deep need happens, we can tend to panic. Like, what are we going to do? Like, we got all these people. We don't have any water. What are we going to do? And so they respond by becoming very contentious and even aggressive toward Moses. If you look in chapter 17, starting in verse 2, it says, So the people contended with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people were very thirsty there for water, and they murmured against Moses. And they said, Why in the world did you bring us up from Egypt? To kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord. And he says, what will, you, what will I do with these people? He realizes, man, they're, they're really upset. They're really in a panic. He says, a little more and they will stone me. So God seeing their need, God hearing their panic, hearing their cries, seeing their aggressive contention, once again, he shows up and provides with a bang. So in verse 5, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go over before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing before you there on the rock in Horeb. You will strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in plain view of the elders of Israel. I love this because God could have had them just stumble upon a stream that already existed, but he doesn't. He says, Moses, gather the people, get them all ready, bring out some of the elders, get your staff by which you struck the Nile. I'm going to go before you and you come strike the rock and I'm going to provide according to their great need. I'm going to give water. So for me, when I've pictured this scene in my head, I've always thought of Moses going out and striking and then like just a a nice river, a nice stream flowing, maybe something like this. Uh, This is just a a river here in central Texas. I have a friend of mine named Michael Weenan who goes to the Anderson campus. He's an engineer. And knowing that we were about to go through this passage, he crunched some numbers. So he's like, okay, two and a half million Israelites, they're cattle, they're very thirsty. What would they need? Well, a river like this provides approximately 2 million of gallons per day. He calculates that they probably needed something more upward on the end of 10 million gallons per day. 
So when Moses gathers all the people, brings out some elders, takes his staff, and strikes the rock, it was probably something much more like this that the people of Israel saw. Are you kidding me? That's incredible. That's, I mean, that blows the mind of the nice, serene little, I mean, I bet that thing's roaring, that thing's shooting up in the air, and God leaves no doubt who it is that he's gathered everyone to remind is in control of their situation and is providing their need. And yet, honestly, sadly, coming out of this moment, it's not rejoicing in song and turning to the Lord. Actually, Moses names this place Masa and Meribah, which means to test and to be dissatisfied or to test and to be contentious. And so stepping away from this amazing time where Moses gathered everyone and God said, look at me, they're still focused on their circumstances. And ultimately, Moses leads us to the question that we all ask when we're in great need. Chapter 17, verse 7. He called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the contending of the Israelites and because of their testing the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so that's where we leave this awesome moment where God steps in and provides with a bang, gathers everyone to see it, and we're left with the place called Masa and Meribah and the people asking the question, is the Lord among us or not? So their heart is still caught up in the circumstances and in their surroundings, and has not yet turned back to the Lord. But good news, we're heading back out. We're almost off the roller coaster. We end on a high note. And so these last two stories, this one's kind of neat. Uh, as they're camped there, uh, another army comes and attacks them, the Amalekites. And as they get attacked, we see a little bit of a turning to the Lord by the Israelites. Because Moses grabs Joshua and he says, Joshua, you get some of your warriors and you go out and fight. And I'm going to go up on this hill and I'm going to hold up my staff. And as Moses holds his staff, the Israelites are winning. As his staff drops, the Amalekites are winning. And so we see this partnership, this obedience, where, where God is acting on behalf of the people. And we see a greater dependence. Look in verse 12, uh, chapter 17, verse 12. It says, And when the hands of Moses became heavy, they took a stone and put it under him. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. So his hands were steady until the sun went down. So Joshua destroyed um, Amalek and his army with the sword. And so there you see Bayan, you see Aaron, you see her, you see the people fighting and they're, they're turning back to the Lord and trusting him in this time of attack. And so instead of a place that's sad, and instead of a place that's remembered by its testing and its disappointment, we see God say, write this down as a memorial in the book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua so that all of the generations will know that I provide. He says, I'm going to wipe out. Let's see where it is. Uh, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and rehearse it in Joshua's hearing. For I will surely wipe out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. 
mean, God wants them to know that it's him and all generations to know that it was him, that they turned to him. And so Moses responds by building an altar and calling the altar, the Lord is my banner. So the focus is shifting, swinging back to the Lord. And then the last story is a story of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, coming to visit him. And I have to imagine, this visit had to have been like a breath of fresh air to Moses. They've been, they've been going through this wilderness. They've been f- facing all of these difficulties, wants, needs, disappointments. And then, Mo- and then Jethro comes to visit. And I just picture Moses running out and taking a big... <sighs> Like, a, like a, a lifelong friend who shows up with your favorite sonic drink after just an awful day. And it says that Jethro came running because he heard of what the Lord had done. And Moses recounts to him the faithfulness of God. Let's read in chapter 18, starting in verse 8. It says, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to Egypt for Israel's sake. And all the hardship that had come on them along the way. And how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced because of all of the good that the Lord had done for Israel. Whom he had delivered from the hand of Egypt. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from the Egyptians' control. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the thing in which they dealt proudly against them, he has destroyed them. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron and all of the elders of Israel came to eat food with the father-in-law of Moses before God. And so here we see the continued turning of the Lord. The retelling of what God has done rejoicing for the faithfulness and the power and the deliverance of God and then an offering, a burnt offering to the Lord and all of the elders coming and enjoying that offering before the Lord. Their hearts are turning back just as they approach Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And so lastly, as Jethro is heading out the door, he sees Moses standing as judge over the people. And they're bringing all of their cases before him. And he's making all the decisions of what should be done. And Jethro says, Moses, that's just not going to work. That's going to wear you out. You need to raise up some qualified men who have the character of God to handle these cases. And then you focus on representing the people before God and handling the difficult ones. And in verse 24, it says, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything that he said. He chose capable men from all Israel, and he made them heads of the people, rulers of the thousands, the hundreds, the fifties, and the tens. They judged the people under normal circumstances, the difficult cases they would bring to Moses, but every small case they would judge themselves. And then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, so Jethro went to his own land. And so here, right as we're getting ready to approach Sinai, we see the people's hearts turning back, offering before the Lord, and then raising up leadership within of qualified men of character just in time to go and encounter God and receive the Ten Commandments. So as I look at this roller coaster of a journey, 
Uh, all the ups and downs and the focusing on what's going around them and forgetting upon the God who, who delivers and provides. One thing stands out to me and that's that perspective matters. The things are there. The question is, do we see the needs, wants, and disappointments of life through the lens of our God who's capable? By which we say, bring it on because my God is bigger. Like the song of triumph. Look at all he has done and look what he will do. I know my destination. Or do we let the things of the world creep into the foreground and become our primary emphasis and our primary focus and then we become overburdened or hopeless or frustrated or panicked. So Jesus addressed this in Matthew 6 and he said, don't worry then saying what will we eat or what will we drink For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. They exist. They're there. But see the Lord. Seek the Lord first. And those things will be taken care of. And then Paul, who may be... His life may be the epitome of the wandering and the twists and turns of a wilderness journey. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So once again, the the requests are there, the needs are there. He just says, keep a heart of gratitude and of thankfulness and take those things first before the Lord. And the result is a peace in the Lord Jesus. And then he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world. So as our perspective is right, as our trust is in our God and his faithfulness and his goodness, we walk through these difficulties of life and we have a peace and a contentment. And as we do, that is a bright shining light that helps point people back to him. So as we close, my question is, what is your perspective? What are the areas in your life right now that your focus is on your surroundings, that they've crept into the front, and that you're feeling the temptation to grumble and to murmur and to get stuck and be stubborn on the circumstances that you're walking through? Where you feel maybe hopeless because you see no answer inside or overburdened. Because you feel like all of the answers rest on your shoulders. And how can we take proactive steps to flip that perspective and lay those things at the feet of our capable and faithful God? And then lastly, what's going on in life right now where your perspective is good? You know, the last year and a half, my dad has been walking through chemo um, for treatments for his cancer. He's got lymphoma. And it's been just kind of cool, honestly, to see him walk through it with a confidence and a peace and a joy because he's not ultimately focused on or considered with his circumstances, but he's focused on the character of his God. And so as he walks through it, as he makes posts on Facebook, as he talks with old friends, 
He's able to shine the light and point people to God. And I'm sure many of you are walking through situations very similarly. And so as you walk through those tough times and you have that peace and contentment, how can you leverage that to shine brightly into a dark world and to declare his goodness and his faithfulness to all generations? Kenny's going to come up and he's going to play a little bit. And I just want to take a moment to reflect. I know it's not something we're necessarily great at to just sit and quiet and think, but I I don't want to put this up here and just let it go by the wayside and let it get shoved in a Bible and go to lunch and, oh yeah, that that thing we did earlier was great. I, I just want to give you a moment to sit and think and reflect on this question and on the circumstances in your life. And then after three to five minutes, I'll pray and close that time and we'll stand together and unifiedly sing and lift up the greatness, the faithfulness of our God. So go ahead and take a few minutes.